welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I am glad to welcome my youngest son to our ministry team. Josh is one of the teaching pastors at Summit Church in Naples, Florida. Now take your Bibles and let's listen to God's Word together. Uh, well, good morning. My name is Josh Stewart. I'm one of the pastors here at the Naples campus, and it's a great joy that I have. It's always a privilege to be able to preach God's Word to you. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Psalm 51. Um, that's where we're going to be today. We're continuing our summer series through the book of Psalms, and we're looking at the different postures of the people of God, what attitude we can have within our hearts towards God that bring him, brings Him much glory, um, but it's also for our good. And today, we get to look at the posture of repentance. Um, in order to um, process through that, we're going to use Psalm 51. And so if you're familiar with Psalm 51, which I know a lot of you are, there's actually a story behind the psalm. And the story is it tells us at the very beginning of Psalm 51 that this was written by King David after he was approached by the prophet Nathan after his situation with Bathsheba. And so David writes this after all that had happened. And so if you're unfamiliar with the story of David and Bathsheba, I think it's important that up front I kind of catch us up on what's going on on the backdrop of this psalm. David was a great king. Um, David was a righteous king. David was the king that God, Yahweh, desired to be king over Israel. His heart desired for David to be king. Um, but David was not a perfect king, and we see there's a situation that happens um, that is a very devastating situation with King David. You can find this in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. Um, David is up on his rooftop one night, and his men are off at war, and he sees a woman who is bathing. And after seeing this woman, um, he begins to lust after her, and then he calls for her to come and to sleep with him. Now Bathsheba was married to Uriah and her husband was off at war. So when David did this, he committed adultery in that moment with Bathsheba. Then he finds out a little bit later that Bathsheba is impregnant with the child because of their interaction. And so David tries to fix this situation. He takes Uriah, her husband, brings him back from war and sets up a situation that Uriah would then go and sleep with his wife to cover it up. And so then he'll think that the child belongs to him. Well, Uriah doesn't do things according to plan. He can't go to his wife because he says, man, my men are off at war. How can I go and have a good time with my wife when, my, when men are out there fighting for this country? So David's plan doesn't work. And so what David does is David decides to give a letter to Uriah to get back to the commander of the army once he goes back. And in this letter, it is Uriah's death sentence. That he tells the commander to put the most intense fighting, when that is happening, put Uriah up front and then have everyone back up so then Uriah will be struck dead. And then Uriah dies. David is responsible for the murder of Uriah. And then for about nine months, David lives with this. He brings Bathsheba in to be his wife. And for nine months, he doesn't repent of the sin. For nine months, he lives with it. And then Nathan, the prophet, comes to David. and He tells him a story. And through the story, David finally, nine months later, is convicted of his sin. He realizes the devastation of what he has done, the lust, the adultery, the murder, the trying to set up a bare false witness. And he comes and writes Psalm 51 in light of these devastating situations as he repents to the Lord. And so as we approach Psalm 51 today, I think, man, as devastating as that story is, there's good news for us. Because if you've ever murdered somebody, if you've ever committed adultery, if you've ever bared false witness, if you've ever done any of these great sins or any other sins, then you can find comfort, that I can find comfort in Psalm 51 as we see the grace and the mercy and the love of our God. And so today we're going to use Psalm 51 to talk about repentance. 
Now, repentance is different than worldly sorrow. It talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Worldly sorrow is that you're just upset you got caught, right? You did something wrong. Someone find out you're sorry that you got caught for what you've done. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is repentance. And repentance is much deeper than worldly sorrow. I love this definition by Sam Storms of what repentance is. And we talk about repentance today and having that posture of repentance towards the Lord. This is what we mean. It says, true Christian repentance involves a heartfelt conviction of sin, a contrition over the offense to God, a turning away from the sinful way of life, and a turning towards a God-honoring way of life. And so it first starts when we repent, is we have to have a conviction, a heartfelt conviction over our sin. What does that mean? It starts with us owning and confessing our sins to the Lord. We have to recognize that we are sinful human beings. That we have to recognize that we say things we shouldn't say. We do things we shouldn't do. We think about things we shouldn't think about. We even don't do things that we should do. That we are sinful people. That we disobey God's holy commands. We have to first acknowledge that. It took David time, but he finally acknowledged, I've sinned against the Lord. A heartfelt conviction for our sins. It starts with us owning what we have done. We are sinful human beings. And then it says there's a turning away from the sinful way of life and a turning towards a God-honoring way. Literally, the word repentance means to turn. And so we're heading down one direction, doing something that is wrong, and then our heart is convicted that this isn't the way that we should be living our life. This doesn't honor God. So we turn and go the other direction in a way that honors God. This is what we mean by repentance. This is what true repentance is. And often when we think about repentance, we think about it in light of salvation. That we encourage people, right? Repent of your sins, turn from them, acknowledge them, and then trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And that's true. That's the first repentance that we do is when we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. This heartfelt conviction that we have done wrong things and we need him to save us. What we need to understand is that repentance isn't just a posture for salvation. It's actually the continual posture that we should have throughout the Christian life. Because we have a sinful nature, because we live in a fallen sinful world, that we are continually sinning against the Lord, and our heart should be a heart of a continual posture of repentance. I love how Dave Mathis says this in a Desiring God article. He says, all the Christian life is repentance. Turning from sin and trusting in the good news that Jesus saves sinners aren't merely one-time inaugural experiences but the daily substance of Christianity. The gospel is for every day and every moment. Repentance is to be the Christian's continual posture within our lives. Recognizing what we've done and repenting. I even think it shows the level of maturity in the Christian faith when we are willing to acknowledge our sins. And when they're exposed, we repent of that. Turn the other way as a heartfelt conviction for what we've done. So the question that I just want to, throw out there as we get started right before we dive into Psalm 51 is how often in your life do you have a posture of repentance to the Lord? We just confessed our sins to the Lord just moments ago. How often do you do that? Is it easy for you to acknowledge your sin and confess it to the Lord? Before we dive into Psalm 51, I just want to pray and ask the Lord to do a work in our hearts today as we read the Psalm and process through it. So let's pray together. Lord, I know how how hard it is um, for us to acknowledge our wrongdoing. 
I know, Lord, there's many times in our lives that we are very good about justifying our sins. But God, we know that sin against you is great. And so I pray that even now, Lord, as we sit here, that you would begin to expose in the hearts of individuals in this room and in my heart, God, that you would expose ways that we have sinned against you, that you would bring that to surface today and and give us a heartfelt conviction of that sin, that we would acknowledge for what we have done and give us the strength and the power to turn away from the sinful way of living and turn towards a God-honoring way. I pray today, Lord, that you would be glorified through this word. The Holy Spirit, that you would work among your people. I am a weak human being. I bring nothing to the table, Lord, but your word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do great things. Work in the hearts of your people. Open our hearts and our minds to what your word has to say and give us, Lord, a continual posture of repentance for your glory and for our good. We pray all of this in the glorious steadfast love, merciful name of Jesus. Amen. And so as we process through Psalm 51, I want to acknowledge that when we sin against people, when we sin against the Lord, there's often earthly consequences that we have to deal with. Even David had earthly consequences. We see in 2 Samuel chapter 12 of the acts that he's done had earthly consequences. But we're not really going to focus on the earthly consequences today, even though they're there. But in light of the series, we're going to focus on when we come before the Lord, how does he respond to us when we repent before him? When we have this heartfelt conviction and we turn from our sin, how, how does God respond to individuals who do that, who trust in Christ and do that? And so we're going to have three postures of repentance that we're going to talk about today, or three truths that we can believe um, based on this. So the first posture that you and I can have as we come, a posture of repentance is this, is Lord, cleanse me of my sin. Let's read the first seven verses together of Psalm 51. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. What I love about how David starts off Psalm 51 is he pleads out to the Lord, right? He says, Lord, according to your mercy, according to your steadfast love, right? According to who you are, have mercy on me. And what David is doing in this moment is so important as we have a posture of repentance is he's pleading out to the Lord, recognizing that what he's about to ask for, he doesn't deserve it. Notice what David doesn't do, right? He doesn't remind God of all the good things that he has done. He doesn't remind God in order to soften this of all the ways he's led Israel the correctly and in the right way. David doesn't try to bring his own merit to the table. What David does is he recognizes that if the Lord's going to answer his prayer of Psalm 51, he's dependent on the Lord to have mercy on him. He recognizes, God, if, if this is going to work, you have to show me mercy according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. You must not give me what I deserve. 
And David recognizes that and he clings himself to the Lord saying, God, you are a merciful God who abounds in steadfast love. So please, please don't give me what I deserve in this moment. And praise God as we come before him that we can plea out to that same God, the same God who is abundant in mercy, the same God who has steadfast love, consistent love towards you and I. So we plead to him knowing that we don't deserve what we're about to ask for. And then David goes on and he begins to describe his sin in, in only a verse and a half in so much detail. He's, he's very specific about what he's done. In fact, in a verse and a half, he uses three words to describe the wrongdoing that he has done over the course of the nine months. He uses three words. The first word he uses is the word transgression. What transgression means is to cross a forbidden line. David said, Lord, I recognize that I've done something wrong, that I've crossed a forbidden line. The next word that he uses, he uses the word iniquity. And what iniquity means is wickedness. David recognizes what I've done is not only have I crossed a forbidden line, but I've done something that is wicked before you, God. And then the last word he uses is sin, which we're more familiar with. And it means to miss the mark. It means not to live up to the standard that God had set. And so David here is owning what he has done. And he's describing it in great detail. Lord, I have done something forbidden. I've crossed the line I should not have crossed. I have acted wickedly in what I've done. And I've missed the mark and the standard that you have set for me. And not only does he describe his sin and his wrongdoing in three words, but he also describes in three words what needs to happen in order for him, right, for these sins and these wrongdoings to be removed. And so in order to emphasize, not only have I done is wrong, but man, you must do several things in order to remove this sin. He talks about blotting out. You must blot out my transgressions. That word blot out means to erase something, to erase from the records. And he said, Lord, I've crossed the forbidden line. You need to blot it out. You need to erase it from the record books. He goes off and talks about his iniquity. And he mentions that you need to wash me of my wickedness. It's the word that was used for washing of clothes. He's saying, I'm filthy with wickedness. You've got to throw me in the wash, God. You have to wash this from me. You need to re- remove these things that I have done. And then the last word he uses is cleanse me. You must cleanse me from my sins. And the word that there, cleanse, means like a ceremonial, to be ceremonially clean. To be able to come before the presence of the Lord again. Saying, Lord, you must cleanse me from the wrongdoing, from missing the mark. What David is doing in this moment, he is owning the true weight of what he has done. He's describing it in much detail, even using other three words to describe in much detail what it would take to remove these because they're so great and his wrongdoing is so big. And not only does he talk about that, but he even continues to talk about his own self and the sin that he has within him. He continues down in verse three and he says that my sin is ever before me, right? That I'm I'm constantly living with the sin that I've committed is ever before me. He goes down and talks about in verse 5, he says that I was conceived in sin or I was brought forth in iniquity. What David is not saying here is he's not saying that his mom did something sinful when she conceived him. But what he's doing is he's emphasizing his total depravity. What David is recognizing here is I was born into sin. That I was born with a sinful nature. When I came out of the womb, I was born as a sinful human being. God, I am helpless. My sin is ever before me. And then my sin even was with me when I was born. He's recognizing and owning his total depravity before the Lord. 
And then he says something interesting in verse four. He says in verse four, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. Now, why would David say that? Why would David say that this sin, right, the sin of of murder, of adultery, like why would he say that this was alone a sin against God? Well, what he's not saying is that when we sin, we only sin against God, right? Because when we sin, we sin against other people. We need to repent of that. We need to apologize for that. We need to ask for forgiveness. But what David is saying here is he's stressing that ultimately every sin that we commit, the big ones or the ones we might consider small are sins against God. That every time that we cross the forbidden line, every time we do something wicked, every time we miss the mark, we are ultimately sinning against God in that moment. And it's interesting because this was actually is brought out in another part of Scripture in a very similar way. In Genesis chapter 39, um, you have the story of Joseph. And most of us are familiar with this. We, w- did this. we went through a series recently through the book of Genesis. And Joseph comes and he's encountered with the situation with Potiphar's wife, his owner's wife. And Potiphar's wife is trying to seduce Joseph and, and get, her to co- get him to commit adultery. And as she's, she's trying to seduce him, look at what it says in verse 9 of Genesis 39. This is Joseph's response to Potiphar's wife. He says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Yes, if he would have, would have done and given into the temptation, he would have sinned against Potiphar. But ultimately, Joseph recognized, if I sin here, I'm doing a wicked thing against God. All of our sins that we commit are ultimately against God. David recognized that. Joseph recognized that. And it's important that we recognize that. And so in the first five verses here, what what David is doing is he is owning the weight of his sin. He is owning what he has done is wrong. What he's owning, that what he has committed is wrong. It's terrible. He's owning the weight of his sin and his total depravity before the Lord. But what's interesting is aren't you and I very good about doing the opposite when it comes to our sin? I feel like we're really good about making our sin seem a lot less than it really is. When we talk about our sin in our life and our wrongdoings, we use words like, man, I I just messed up. I made a mistake. I slipped up. Oh yeah, my my bad, my bad. I probably shouldn't have done that. Or even we kind of blame it on our personality. Oh, that's just who I am. And this just is how I get when I get angry, right? We begin to use softer words in order to minimize the weight of our sins. I remember I was in seminary and I was observing a a counselor one time who was talking to a couple. Um, The couple was talking about something that they had done and they were saying things. I mean, I made a mistake, I messed up. Like we, you know, we just slipped up in the moment. I remember the counselor in a very loving a loving but direct way said, hey, let's call what you did for what it is. You're saying words like I messed up and I slipped up, but reality, what you did is you sinned against God. Like that's what you did. Let's own your, own your actions for what they were. You sinned against a holy God. You didn't just mess up, you sinned. And I remember when I heard that, like I was like, whoa, like, Wow, like I didn't even notice they were using those words, right? Because I do that all the time. I still struggle to do that. We love to minimize our sin. We love to act like it's not a big deal. But what we must recognize when we repent before the Lord, we must own the weight and the gravity of our sin. That we must realize that when we sin against an eternal God, we deserve eternal consequences for that sin. 
that no sin against a holy, eternal God is a small sin. When we sin, it is big, and we must feel the weight of that. And so for you in your life, right now, how are you minimizing the sins that you're committing? How are you using words to justify and act like they're not that big of a deal? Maybe so that you don't have to repent of them, or maybe to make yourself feel better for what you've done. How today are you using the words, like, I made a mistake, I messed up, and not feeling the true gravity of what you have done. And why is that so important? Why is it so important that we own it like David, the true weight of what we've done? I think first, because when we own how great our sin is, it was, it's a motivation not to do it. When we recognize, man, we do something forbidden and wicked, and we cross a line we shouldn't cross, and what we've done is wrong. Right? We own that as a motivation not to sin, but also when we own the weight of our sin for what it is, truly for what it is, man, then we see God's mercy and steadfast love and his grace for what it really is in our lives. And David actually talks about this in verse seven. I read it earlier. It probably was kind of confusing for a lot of you, but I'm gonna read it again because it does come across confusing at at first glance. He says in verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Most of us in this room probably don't know what hyssop is. I didn't know what hyssop was, right? And so we see, what does it mean to purge you with hyssop? Like, what are you talking about here, David? And even though now in Naples, Florida, in 2022, it doesn't mean much, but actually hyssop was very important in biblical times. I have a picture of hyssop here up on the screen. This is what it looks like. I know what it looked like until I Googled it. (laughs) But this is what hyssop is. And hyssop is a plant, But hyssop has significance in the Old Testament. Most of y'all remember the story um, of the Egyptians who had captivity to Israelites. And so God used Moses in order to send the plagues to rescue the Israelites out of the hands of the Egyptians. And the last plague that he used was the angel of death was going to come and kill the firstborn son. But in order for that to be avoided, he says, go and take the blood of a lamb and spread it on your doorpost, right? That's what the Israelites were supposed to do in obedience. And if they did that, the angel of death would pass over them. But most of us don't know is that what he asked them to use was a hyssop branch, to dip the hyssop branch in blood and then put it over your doorpost. Even in the ceremonies, religious ceremonies in in the Old Testament, what a hyssop branch was used, that it would take the sacrifice of an animal, it would dip the hyssop branch in the blood, and it would then sprinkle it onto the altar. And so the hyssop branch, what it represented was the removal of sin through the shedding of blood. And so David cries out, Lord, I need you to blot it out. I need you to wash me. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to do a great work. But he recognizes, Lord, I recognize his blood must be shed in order for this to happen. He's basically saying, wash me with blood. Then I will be whiter than snow. Wash me, Lord. Blood must be sacrificed. Blood must be shed in order for me to be cleansed from all that I have done. David recognizes the need for a sacrifice for his sins to be forgiven. And on this side of the cross, man, how beautiful is this Christ connection here? Because the same is true of you and I. In order for God to be able to make us whiter than snow, in order to erase our sins, to wash us of our wickedness, to cleanse us from missing the mark, we have, blood has to be shed. And by God's grace, the blood of Jesus was shed for us. 
He was the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice for us. And so Jesus was that perfect lamb that lived the perfect life we couldn't do, God himself. But then he was our sacrifice on our behalf as our great substitute. And Jesus's blood was shed for us, that he experienced death and separation and the punishment for our sins. He experienced it so we wouldn't have to. And then he rose from the dead victoriously. And so you and I, when we trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we believe in who he is, we can be made whiter than snow. We can have the confidence that we have a God who will blot out our sins, remove them. He will cleanse us and wash us from the horrible, wretched things that we've done. And even though we are totally depraved, that we can be forgiven and cleansed because of the blood sacrifice of Jesus. Beloved, when we repent of our sins... We can rest that God will answer our prayer and cleanse us because Jesus died for us. I love how it talks about this in in 1 John 1, 9. It says that if we confess our sins or if we repent of our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. We repent with our heartfelt conviction before the Lord, if we confess our sins, God is faithful. He always does what he says, but he's also just. And because Jesus' blood was shed for us, he's just in order to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. You can be cleansed today because of Jesus. So if you've never made that decision, man, make the decision today to trust in Jesus, to be cleansed from all of your unrighteousness. Your sin is weighty. There's gravity to your sin. But God's grace is even greater. And you and I can be cleansed of all of our sins. Then we repent, we can trust and believe in the finished work of Jesus. So what does it look like for you to have a posture of repentance and say, Lord, and cleanse me of my sins and trust because of Jesus and your faith in him that your sins can be forgiven. We can own the weight of our sin and we can embrace the weight of what God has done. And so that's the first posture we see. Lord, cleanse me of my sin. The second posture of repentance we see is, Lord, restore me to yourself. Let's continue, starting in verse eight. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And are you feeling the weight of your sin this morning? Are you feeling the weight to the degree that, man, I just want to hear something joyful. (laughs) I want to hear something gladness. I want these broken bones to be able to rejoice, man. The psalm is for you. What we've heard and what we're about to hear is for you. You can hear joy. You can hear true gladness. It says in verse nine, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. He says, create in me a clean heart, a clean heart, O God, and renew a right or steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So what David is doing in in Psalm 51 is he is recognizing not only does he need the Lord to cleanse him and make him whiter than snow through the shedding of blood, but he also recognizes that as he walks this life, as he turns from his sins and heads towards the God-honoring way of living, he recognizes that he still needs the Lord. He recognizes that the work that the Lord did to wash him, he also needs him to restore him. He needs him to renew him. He needs him to strengthen him 
as he walks out the way, the life that God designed for him to walk out. And so what David is saying here is, Lord, not only make me whiter than snow, but create in me a clean heart. Not only make me whiter than snow, but don't cast me away from your presence, right? Continue to give me your Holy Spirit to empower me and to walk with me, right? Not, not only make me whiter than snow, but created me a rider, a steadfast spirit. Not only make me whiter than snow, but Lord, I need you to uphold me with a willing spirit. I need you to give me the joy of salvation. Remind me of the joy and the happiness that you are a God that saves me. What David is doing is he's crying out to the Lord and his repentance. Not only make me whiter than snow, but walk with me. Be with me. Give me your presence. Strengthen me. Renew me and restore me as I walk out your commands. And we know that the request that David had, because it says in verse one that our God is full of steadfast love and abundant mercy, that God by his grace answers David's prayer to be with him every step of the way. I think we hear that, right? And we rejoice on what it says on the words in Psalm 51. But I think it's often really hard for us to actually practically embrace that as we live out this Christian life. I think the concept of God cleansing us from our sins and making us whiter than snow, we sing about that, we see it, most of us have heard it most of our lives, and we hear that, and we can get behind that and believe that a little bit more clearly, right? Yeah, Lord, you cleanse me, you make me whole, I need you to make me righteous. We kind of get that part. We know that he loves us to cleanse us. But when it comes to him giving us the strength and walking with us and giving us his presence and being with us, I think that's a little bit harder for us to actually practically grasp and actually even believe. Because of the fact that we sin all the time. Because there's sins in our life that bring us so much shame. Because we repent of the same sins over and over again to the Lord. We have so much defeat there. And because of that, it often feels like what he wants to do is just to kind of push us away. He wants to cast us out of his presence. If he does uphold us, it's with a very unwilling spirit. And maybe one day if we get our act together, then maybe he'll bring us in. But now he's he's just kind of an irritated dad who's constantly giving us that glance, right? Like seriously, like are we doing this again? I remember I was listening to a podcast um, a little while ago, actually a podcast by our very own Dave Harvey, um, who's among the members of our church here. He has a church planning network, um, and they, were, they had a podcast with a pastor and author by the name of Dane Ortland. Um, and Dane Ortland has written a book called Gentle and Lowly. And if you have never read this book, if I could recommend one book to you, this would be the book that I recommend. And so they were, he, they were talking to Dane about his book and everything, and and the very end of his podcast, I mean, I was listening on the way to work. And I remember exactly where I was. I was on the corner of Old 41 and 41. I was about to get to the church. And at the end of the podcast, Dane said something that struck me. Dane said something along the lines of, I feel like for the rest of my life in ministry, my job is to convince people that God is not just putting up with them. And like, I, I, I remember like the tears, like, coming over my eyes as I read that because I live my life often with the posture that God is just kind of putting up with me. That because I can't do things the way that I should, 
because I continue to fall into sin, because I'm always repenting that God has just had this continual posture towards me, that he loves me, but he doesn't really like me. He's just putting up with me. And I begin to think through that, like, why do I believe that God is just putting up with me? And often I think I believe that because I'm just putting up with myself. And I have expectations that I set for myself, expectations as a pastor, as a dad, as a husband, as just a Christian. And I set these expectations and I'm continually failing these expectations. I'm not doing what I should be doing. And I'm failing over and over again. And I'm getting frustrated and irritated with myself. So if I'm irritated with me, then God must feel the exact same way. He loves me. He'll cleanse me of my sin. When it comes to drawing me near, walking out this Christian faith, He's constantly just irritated. He's putting up with me. And the reason why I highly recommend Gentle and Lowly because Dane Ortland, what he does through that book is grab out scripture biblically and argues against that philosophy, how that's not true. That even though we often fall into that trap, that scripture teaches us something different. That God isn't just putting up with you. He's not just putting up with me. Here's one the quote from the book. He's talking about Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, when it says that God saves us to the uttermost. So he write, he's writing about that phrase, God saves us to the uttermost. And listen what Dane says in his book. He says, God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our souls. Those places where we are most ashamed and most defeated. The things in your life, the sin that you're continuing to repent from, the shame that you feel, that sin that causes you to cringe more than anything else, in those darkest crevices, that's where God's forgiving, redeeming, and restoring touch reaches to. That level of our lives. He goes more than this. Those crevices of sin are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. His heart willingly goes there. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost. He saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. We cannot send our way out of his tender care. What this is saying, what, 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 what Dane is bringing out in, in according to scriptures that what, what God does is our deepest, darkest levels of our lives. It's not the areas that God pushes us away. It's not the areas that he says, get your life together, then I will draw you near. That in fact, it's in these areas that God is more strongly drawn to us. That God is coming to us to be with us. Another part of his book, he says, in the places in our lives that cause us to cringe the most, or the place that causes God to hold us even tighter. That our God is a God of Psalm 51. That he doesn't push us away in our weakest and hardest moments. He's not just putting up with you, but by his grace and his goodness, because of his abundant mercy and his steadfast love, that he is drawn to you in your hardest days. That when we come to him and say, Lord, I need you to restore me, he says, it's my joy to give you a clean heart. I desire to give you that steadfast spirit. I want to be with you. I'm not going to cast you out. I'm going to bring you closer in your weakest and hardest moments. I'm going to be with you. My Holy Spirit's going nowhere. I'm going to uphold you with a willing spirit, joyfully and gladly, and the joy of salvation. I want that to be on your heart, to recognize I just don't save you. 
but I walk with you. I strengthen you. I, repower, I empower you and I restore you. Not for a moment, not for a season, but for the rest of eternity. Because the righteousness of Jesus doesn't fade. Because the fact that we are whiter than snow doesn't eventually get tainted. That you and I have a God who walks with us and is with us and saves us to the uttermost. So beloved, what does it look like for you today to embrace this beautiful reality that you have a God when you repent of your sins that doesn't just cleanse you, but restores you, empowers you, and renews you and does it joyfully? It's his delight. Maybe for some of you, you're fearful fearful of repenting of your sins because of how he will respond. Because of the irritated dad who will give you the glance and be like, all right, we're doing this again? But instead, he's a dad that never gives an irritated glance. He's a dad in your darkest moments, he's holding you even tighter. Say, I'm here every step of the way to strengthen you and empower you and to walk with you. This is the benefit of the Christian life. This is the benefit of repentance. So what does it look like for you today to draw near to the God that loves you more than you could possibly imagine. To embrace the true reality of who he is, not the one in your mind, but the true of what Psalm 51, he gives you a clean heart, a steadfast spirit. He's present with you. He wants to give you the joy of his salvation. And he's walking with this life and upholding you willingly and joyfully. Respond to that gracious and wonderful God this morning. And so the first thing we see is that, man, Lord, you need to cleanse me of my sin. We see, Lord, you need to restore me to yourself. And he does that. He does that joyfully. And lastly, as we, as we wrap this thing up, the last posture that we can have is, Lord, use my repentant heart for your glory. Let's continue to read verses 13 through 17. He says, if you do these things, God, right? If you, if you make me whiter than snow, if you, if you don't cast me away and uphold me and, and give me this clean heart, if you walk with me, renew me, strengthen me, if you do this, he says, then I would teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of all of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And so I think the first thing I want to bring out is verse 6 and 7 here of what the Lord is, what he is saying here is he says, God, I would give you sacrifices. I would give you burnt offerings, but you're not concerned as much with my actions as you are with my broken spirit, my sorrowful heart. I think that's important as we repent of our sins, right? If we felt that heartfelt conviction, what we often want to do, the first thing we want to do is do a bunch of good things, right? Go to church, read our Bible, go back to community group. We want to do a bunch of good things, a bunch of works. But David is saying, Lord, that's not, only what you want. If you wanted burnt offerings, if you wanted me to make sacrifices, I would do that. But that's not what you want. What you're pleased with is that I come with a repentant heart, that I come with a broken spirit. Yes, our actions should change when we repent of our sins, but our actions are an overflow of the repentant heart, not in place of it. And so let's remember that, beloved, when you come, what God wants for you right now in this moment 
is just a repentant heart. That's what he desires when we turn from our sins. And he goes on to say what he's going to do because the Lord is right, abundant in mercy and steadfast love. He says, I'm going to tell the transgressor your way so sinners will come to you. What David notices is other people who are sinning. There's other people that need to hear this truth. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell them. I'm going to let them know that there's a God that can make them whiter than snow. I want to let them know that there's a God that will give them a clean heart and walk with them and, and uphold them and be present with them, with the Holy Spirit, won't cast them away. I want them to know this. So David says, I'm going to tell them, and when I do, sinners will return to you because this is the best news on the planet. So who in your life today needs to hear this? That we have a God that can take the devastations of your sins and he can use it for his glory. And one way he can do that is when we tell sinners of his way. So who in your life, coworker, family member, friend, needs to hear this truth that this week you can come to them, own your sin. I'm totally unrighteous. I've done wicked, horrible things. But let me tell you about the grace of our God. And this is available to you. We can glorify God even through our horrible sins by telling others of his wonderful grace as we turn from our sins. Then he goes on to say, right, open my lips. And I will sing your praise, right? Working within my heart, save me from this blood guiltiness. And I will sing and praise you for what you've done. So not only can we bring glory to God by telling others, but we can also bring glory to God by praising him with our own lips and our own mouth. That we can sing songs, which is really important. We're going to do it in just a minute. We can praise God for all that he has done when we come to him and repent. But also, and we throughout our day, throughout our week, we can praise God for this wonderful grace and his mercy and steadfast love. Do you have regular rhythms within your life that you were praising God for what he's done? That you're reminding yourself of what you deserve because of your sin and the fact that he's cleansed you and he's walking with you every step of the way, praising him that he's a God that is near and cares for you every moment. What does that look like for you throughout the week? What patterns and rhythms can you have to praise God for who he is and what he has done? You can glorify God with your words and and with your actions because of his marvelous, wonderful grace. So who needs to hear this truth today? And how can you praise him in song and with your words? Because this is how he responds to repentive sinners. As we think through the message today, how is God calling you to own the weight of your sin? To stop justifying and minimizing, but owning it but then trusting in the blood sacrifice of Jesus to make you whiter than snow. How today do you need to be reminded that, that God isn't just putting up with you, but because of his grace, he's given you what you do not deserve. He's drawing you near. He's upholding you, strengthening you, and renewing you as you walk out the Christian faith, and he's doing it joyfully. And when you sin, which you will, and you repent, he comes and embraces you with a loving gracious smile on his face saying, let me be your strength. Let me create in you that clean heart. And then what is it like for you to tell others this wonderful news and to also to live it out in your words and in your actions? And I love it how we end every service here because we end with the communion. And today, the emphasis, right? Purge me with hyssop and then I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow that the removal of sin comes through the shedding of blood. And what this teaches us, it reminds us we can worship God because he has done that for us. 
on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a piece of bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. He took a cup of wine and says, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So do this in remembrance of me when you gather together. My body was broken. My blood was shed so you could be cleansed. That it happened so God could have a relationship with you and to walk with you. And so as we take communion, we're reminded in a physical way what the Lord has done. We can rejoice because he has purged us with his blood. He has made us whiter than snow. And so as we gather today, the way we do it here is we take a piece of bread, we, we dip it in the juice. We also have prepackaged communion. If you're more comfortable with that, we have two in the front and two in the back. And in just a moment as the music plays, take time to praise God for what he's done. And then in a physical, tangible way, come and take communion, reminded of the bloodshed of Jesus, so that when we repent, everything we talked about in Psalm 51 is true. It's accurate, and it's not going away. And that's for those who have trusted in Jesus already. If you haven't trusted in Jesus, my, my hope and my desire is that you see today the marvelous mercy and steadfast love of Jesus that we have a God who created us. And even though we have fallen into sin, the lengths that he took to save us, redeem us, and to bring us to him and to walk with us and cleanse us. We would love to talk about what it means to trust Jesus. You talk to me about it, any of the, anybody with a name tag, maybe the person that brought you here today. Our hope for you is that you would embrace in Jesus today. The greatest decision you can ever make is to repent of your sins, have a heartfelt conviction for what you've done, turn from your sins, trust in Jesus, and allow him to empower you as you walk out the Christian life. So we would love to make that. I'll be out front. If you want to come to me, we'll pray for you. We'd love to be able to talk with you about this amazing truth. So beloved, your God loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine. Embrace this truth, live it out, and allow for it to change you from the inside out. The tables are open. Come whenever you're ready.